the MT Takeaway Podcast with Maples Teasdale. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the MT Takeaway with Maples Teasdale. My name is Adam Bernstein and I lead the Maples Teasdale Hospitality and Leisure Sector. Today I'm going to be talking to Liam Norval, founder of Posh Company and Hospitality Titans. Morning Liam and welcome. Morning Adam, thanks for having me on. If we could kick off, Liam, this morning by just a brief background on you, how you got into the hospitality and leisure business, what careers you might have pursued before then. Absolutely, no problem. Let's go all the way back to uh, a young schoolboy. I was a football player for West Ham from the age of 12 to 16. And then I was picked up by Leicester City by a manager called Mickey Adams. Came to my house and said, look, we want you in our first team in Leicester. My family said, look, let's make the decision. Let's go up there. So uh, I took on the task of moving from London and going up to the Midlands and uh, pursuing my dreams as a professional football player. I had some bad luck in that professional life. Uh, managers getting sacked left, right and centre. You're always trying to prove yourself at that age. You know, it was a great experience for me to do that and uh, played with some incredible players. And I think you learn a lot when you move away from home at a young age. It was certainly something that I will never forget. I ended up then playing for clubs like Cardiff City. And then I unfortunately went down the lower leagues and played for teams like Cambridge United, Ebbsfleet, and I finished my career at Bromley Football Club, uh, which is a local club to me. Ended up captain there and uh, had some good memories there as well. But I knew that football was coming to an end and that wasn't a career that I could pursue. And my best friend, whilst I was living in Leicester, was at Loughborough University and he was a a DJ. So I said to him during a bit of time when I was uh, injured, teach me how to play. You know, it could be quite fun, a bit of a hobby. And I really enjoyed it. So we created a brand called The House Doctors, which was pretty local at the time. I I remember going into the hot trending uh, venue in Beckenham at the time. It's called Box Bar. And I said to him, look, I think I can fill this for you every Friday and Saturday night. Just give us a gig. And he was a bit unsure. You know, we were unknown. It was our first gig. But he took a chance on us. And on our first night, we had a queue going around the corner because I think there are a lot of people going there to see us fail, first of all. But we ended up putting on a pretty good night. And from then started running events like Twisty Glam, Posh Funk, uh, working with guys at Red Velvet, created a brand called Emergency Room. So my hospitality journey came from that side. So it was running nightclubs and being a DJ and seeing how sort of the operation of putting things like that were on. I enjoyed the buzz of selling tickets and selling out venues. As house doctors, we played at venues like Pasha, Ministry of Sound. Uh, We played for Head Candy uh, around Europe in a few destinations. So it was a great experience. So from going from footballer to DJ to nightclub promoter, you know, I was certainly enjoying a, a good lifestyle at that time. It was a lot of fun. And then what happened, a gentleman called Nick House, who run probably the biggest promotion agency in London called Nick House Entertainment. They were also called London Parties. They were the biggest players in the sort of the promotion game in London. He said, look, come in and work for me. It was just around the corner, actually, in Great Titchell Street. They had all the best brands, you know, China White, Café de Paris, Taman Gang, Roof Gardens, all the big nightclubs uh, sort of 15 years ago. Um, so I went in there and really, really enjoyed it. It was almost like the academy of the best people in hospitality today. Uh, if I reeled off some names, you know, some of the biggest people that are working in hospitality today and some of the biggest brands. It was a great group of people great personalities and everyone was at the top of their game and we all loved going out and putting on great events Café de Paris was one of my clients at the time at the start I've got to be honest with Café de Paris I wasn't sure if it was the right type of venue that I wanted to be working with but met with the owner met with the general manager and we said look we've got some ideas it was an 800 capacity venue at the time it was probably the biggest account that Nick had we needed to put in some really sort of fresh creative ideas to make it one of the sort of destination hubs in London because it was the second oldest club in, in London. You know, the Windmill was the oldest and then Café de Paris was next. So it was coming up to 94 years old at the time, which was, you know, pretty old for a nightclub today. 
So we always had to keep reinventing the concept. So we created sort of Celebrity Saturdays and I, I hit the perfect time for the reality TV stuff. So the Love Island was coming out, Made in Chelsea, the Towers of this world. So we were then picking up all the sort of stars from that, which were really hot in the Daily Mail and all making lots of coverage. And we were hosting all their birthdays. Packed out every single night. Tables were going crazy. We managed to make Café de Paris one of the top venues in London for a long, long time. I was there for nearly nine years. I moved on to sales and marketing director within the Maxwell's group, which had Roadhouse, which everyone's probably been there once upon a time. We opened Tropicana Beach Club in Holborn. We then went on to open Old Compton Street Brasserie, which is probably the hot property in Soho today. Fantastic what they're doing there. And, you know, seven or eight other brands as well. So that was my journey in. And once I decided I needed to move away from Maxwell's, I then worked with Alex Proud who had Proud Embankment, uh, Stanmore House in Brighton, Proud City as well, and a couple of other venues. And I was there as a sales and marketing director for just under a year. But I had a burning desire to create my own business, my own agency. That's when uh, Posh Cockney was born. And then just going into Posh Cockney, what do they do? What do they offer their clients? Is it quite similar to what you've done throughout your career or is it a bit different? Well, I think I should start with how Posh Cockney was born in terms of the name. My best friend and I, Jack Whitehall, a few people might know, a famous comedian, we had an idea of creating a restaurant called The Posh Cockney. So it was going to be East End food, but cooked with a twist in somewhere like Putney or Notting Hill or something like that. We were really excited. I started looking at the sites and everything like that. But he selfishly went off to film Jungle Cruise with The Rock and Emily Blunt. So um, I was left with uh, no restaurant with, with Jack, uh, but I love the name. So Posh Cockney was born and we started as Posh Cockney events, I've got to be honest. Because of my time at Maxwell's and Proud, I had a really strong black book of mega, mega brands that we were doing events for, Unilever, Twitter, just to name you sort of two there. But we were sort of doing a couple of million a year just on events and I was looking to take that to different venues around London. But what happened was, because of my marketing experience, a lot of brands were approaching us then saying, look, we need some marketing support now. You know, there's a lot of new businesses opening up. Mark Wahlberg's, uh, Wahlberg's in Covent Garden was one. You know, we went in there and we sort of put in our ideas and we said, look, you know, you need to change this. We were very familiar with Covent Garden. I spent sort of nearly a decade there, so I knew it like the back of my hand. So we helped position them into a, a good place and drive more revenue through the door. Uh, and now Posh Cockney today, you know, we offer a number of services. So Posh Cockney is very well known. and We've won multi awards now for our PR and marketing services. But also on the event side, I think we just won sort of best 360 agency in the UK. With all the services we do with it, sort of paid media, sort of social media management, productions, video and photography, you know, our PR team produce amazing results for our clients. You know, uh, we're breaking records every year. To summarise, I think we're more of an experience agency because if you think about it, everything we do is about creating experience for customers within our clients' brands. So we have to understand what the brand is for our client and, you know, what their sort of perfect audience is. And then we have to create that experience for them, whether, you know, it's a video we produce, whether it's a piece of photography that we produce, whether it's the tone of voice with any marketing that goes out on a press release or any sort of copy on the website. So there's so many different facets to it. I'm very lucky that I've built an amazing team now at PC, all very, very skilled and hungry professionals in, in the PR and marketing world. We've built a very strong family there and we don't settle for average. We have to keep the intensity high and keep pushing the barriers and being the trendsetters. We have to follow trends, but we have to also be the ones that are leading the way. And I think that's where Posh Cockney have picked up so much good attention and, and great brand awareness at the moment, being seen as one of those top agencies in the UK at the moment. The amount of business that's coming to us now is fantastic. You know, we're in the position where we can cherry pick and we can sort of see what's right for us. And as long as it has the same values and we see it as a long-term partnership, then we're going to go with them. And I'm assuming Jack Whitehall's not involved 
No, he's not involved. No, no, no. He's in the States a lot at the moment. You know, he's he's doing fantastically, you know, making lots of uh, amazing films. Uh, the Big Red Dog being one that I enjoyed with my daughter. Uh, just around the corner, actually, we went to the private screening at Charlotte Street Hotel. But yeah, I mean, Jack, we catch up a lot. But um, yeah, he's not involved in the restaurant game with me at the moment. And then if we can just move into more hospitality, obviously you offer loads of services to your clients. If I can just maybe ask whether you could tell me what advice you would give to a hospitality brand looking to set up in the UK at the moment. Uh, well, Posh Conti have been very, very uh, lucky in a way that we've picked up a lot of brands uh, internationally coming to the UK. I think we've opened 21 venues in the last three years, and a lot of them have been international brands coming here. I think London is a fantastic place to you know, make a flagship venue for your, uh, your concept or brand. It's very difficult. There's lots of challenges. Staffing is always going to be a problem. Um, you know, our gas and electric going through the roof at the moment. There's lots of hidden costs that you probably don't, you know, build in when you first think that's the right location for me. But I think it's bringing on the right people that know the location, working with people like Posh Cotney and working with, you know, your previous person on the podcast, Pete Warden, who I actually have a business with them. Bringing in consultants that know the area, know what to do and how to operate because you have to adapt your business quite a lot to a different market, you know, whether you're from Dubai or New York, Miami. But when you come to London, you have to understand who you're going to be bringing into your restaurant. We've just literally signed a client as I was coming into this room right now, uh, a Malaysian client coming into the UK. And they've actually created a brand new concept. They're so strong in Malaysia, they don't want their Malaysian fans to think it's exactly the same alike for like. So they've created a brand new concept. So we're very excited to be bringing uh, Meat Bros to Paddington uh, in a couple of months. So that's breaking news for you. Great. As you said, the Malaysian brand not wanting it to be like for like as it is in Malaysia. Is that what you would say that a lot of, say, restaurants who are coming and trying to break the UK or, or London market would do? They kind of need to adapt to the environment they're operating in in London, because I would say London, as opposed to most cities around the world, is a lot more international. Do they have to make special considerations, you know, as opposed to maybe opening in Miami or, or New York or, or L.A.? Is it a bit different here? I think it depends on what you're serving. Our Malaysian client, for example, is a steakhouse. The reason why they want to create something new here is probably the produce. You know, they might get a different type of, of meat coming over there to Malaysia. So the taste might be different. The, the spice palette might be different. I think you do have to take that into consideration. But if we look at Happy and Piccadilly Circus, who Pete and I work on, they adapt their menu consistently because they know it's a tourist hotspot. I think they have about 1,400 covers a day, which is phenomenal. Probably the busiest restaurant in London right now. You do have to adapt, but your key brand values need to stay strong. You know, if you look at the Zoomers of this world, wherever you go, it doesn't matter where you are on the planet, you're going to taste the same food. It's going to be the same sort of style and people expect that sort of quality. It's something to look at. It's something to have in your back of your mind. But if you feel very strong about your product, then I think you go with it. Just moving on to, say, maybe looking at trends in the market that your clients are experiencing or maybe you are seeing. Maybe if we break it into two things, trends in relation to the properties they might be going after and then trends just generally in the hospitality market, what are we seeing? Is it, is it growing? Is it shrinking? Is inflation having a big effect? Things like that. For me, I've been telling a lot of our clients, you know, how do we sort of have a bit of a point of difference? And I think if you look at Leo, that's just opened in my old Café de Paris site, it's that immersive experience, the showtainment philosophy, okay? So customers today, I don't think, want to just come in and have a, a nice meal in a, in a nice restaurant. They're looking for more value. So having, you know, an amazing show uh, and dinner experience with potentially a nightclub going in after, I think that's really what people are looking for. And it's very successful in places like Ibiza and Mykonos, et cetera, like that. 
So London is trying to adapt there. And I think the theatre element is really how, you know, if you look at all the new openings that are happening right now, the Caprice Holding guys, you know, they're sort of front runners at the moment. We're creating these amazing, immersive, breathtaking venues that have got so much sort of theatre to it, whether it's the food, whether it's the way that the drinks are brought out, the vessels they're in, uh, the staff that almost become part of a cast, a bit of a show themselves. And I think members, clubs and hotels are going to go down that route as well. It's just adding that extra value. What are the utilities? What are the added benefits do you have by going into that property? And then it's all about how do you create loyalty within those businesses? How do you make sure with so much competition, they keep coming back to you? So you've got to keep adapting and keep changing things a lot. But yeah, I think for me, that is the trend that I'm seeing a lot with the, you know, any new opening that's happening. It's, you know, a lot of detail going into the design, not very minimalistic anymore. You know, that it all comes down to social media, if, you're, if I'm honest. It's, you know, these Instagrammable venues that people are going in there and you're creating ambassadors of your business by every customer that comes in and they're taking photos of the food, the venue, the staff, whatever it may be. And they become your influencers. They're your micro-influencers that will tell all of their friends and family because they're saying, you know, this is an amazing place you have to come. You know, it's just creating that sort of knock-on effect and creating, a, you know, a huge load of momentum for any new opening. And especially in that sort of first opening stage, it's crucial. Just going back to, say, places like Leo and the immersive experiences, are these restaurants and, and venues now taking the view that maybe one sitting in a night is enough for them on the basis that, that table may come in, they'll eat and they'll just continue drinking whilst the entertainment's going on. Because I remember, however, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, the key to the restaurant sector was turnaround of tables. You know, you needed to get 6pm, 7pm, 8pm and just get the churn. Are we now seeing that venues are charging more to keep people in longer and then bank on people spending a lot on the drinks throughout the evening? Leo, yes, it's one sitting. It's a minimum of £250 a head, so it's not cheap. But, you know, you're paying for the full experience, right? You're paying for like going to, you know, the Royal Albert Hall, for example, to see a show and you're having amazing food with it as well. But then you look at, again, going back to the happies of this world, everything is about an hour and a half, one hour, 45 minutes in and out. And they're sort of churning three or four times a day. So it depends on the business model, if I'm honest. The average spend per head at sort of Happy's is uh, probably £30, whereas, you know, Leo's is going to be 250 So you need these it swings in roundabouts in that respect. You know, you need to have the churn with Happy. But with Leo, you can upsell. You know people are in there. They're not going to go anywhere for the night. They're there. They're with you. And it's probably going to that sort of higher level of, of clientele as well, obviously. So I suppose we're now targeting, at the one end, people who just want a quick meal, cheap, and then at the other end, people who are willing to make a night of it and spend everything at that yeah. one venue. Yeah, 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 I think so. I mean, look, you know, some, you know, Michelin star restaurants out there as well, that there is a bit of a churn as well. But I think when you go to these restaurants and it's such a emphasis on the food, people are going to be staying there for sort of two hours, two and a half hours, and they're fully experiencing it. They're having wine tasting. There's so much more other elements to it. Some restaurants do very, very well with the sort of quick grab and go, the family friendly restaurants, you know, when you've got families and, you know, we're just talking off air, we've got both got children, you know, my daughter sitting at a table for longer than two hours is a struggle, right? You know, you've got to keep them engaged. So it depends on what type of restaurant you are and, you know, what type of audience you're going for. You know, if it's younger, family friendly restaurants, it's going to be a much quicker. Which is why Wagamama's and Pizza Express will never fail. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then... Just a general overview of how you think the hospitality and leisure industry is going to fare in 2023. I mean, I've seen a few things in the press that have said year on year as against 2022, it's a bit ahead of where it was. But then you have to factor into that that inflation is running at you know 10 percent, and and maybe if growth is only four or five percent, then there's still that five percent gap. So just wondering where you see it going this year. 
we're very lucky that we've got a lot of clients all around London spread across uh, also in the home counties. Uh, if we look at our clients in the city, which, uh, you know, we've got Andaz London, uh, Five Star Hotel in Liverpool Street, Sun Street Hotel also in Liverpool Street, Moorgate. They're doing really, really well. But it's the trend of the Tuesday to Thursday, which is like Saturday night every night. Because of the work from home situation we're in right now, where lots of businesses are still struggling to get everyone back in, the Friday is actually a bit of a difficult one. Whereas in the West End, Fridays are busy again. So it's still got that sort of regional differences in that respect. Um, I think tourism is back. You know, it's, it's not fully back, but there's a lot more people coming to the UK and especially London. I think the winter is going to be good. I think the summer is going to be really strong this year, if I'm honest. I feel like we're still on this sort of snowball effect from what happened with COVID and people are just really keen to get out. I was just saying about our clients in the home counties like Essex and Kent, for example, uh, they're doing so well because people still want to have that sort of London experience. And a lot of venues now adapting to have a bit more of a luxury menu in the way they're dressing their venues. Like we opened a Ray in Essex last year for Kem, for all the Love Island fans out there. You know, we turned that into the number one Essex restaurant today. People go there because it's the same sort of experience as going into Mayfair, but it's only five minutes around the corner. So a lot of businesses are offering a little bit more luxury. They probably raised their prices as well. But, you know, people still want to spend money. I think we've had a real struggle with all the other sort of elements with uh, rail strikes and everything like that. That sort of killed the events market because people are booking so much later at the moment because they're looking to see what sort of obstacles they might come across if they're trying to put on a 3,000 people conference, for example. That's really interesting. Just finally, I, I know we spoke previously about NFTs in the hospitality sector. So, I was hoping just for me and, and everyone else who's going to listen that you could give us a bit of background on how you see NFTs actually working in the hospitality industry. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Posh Cockney as an agency is a digital agency, okay? So when uh, Mark Zuckerberg puts out this roadmap, uh, this blueprint of sort of meta, changing their name and saying, that, you know, the metaverse is going to be huge in the next five to 10 years. So we look at it and say, okay, what opportunities are there for us to sort of start adapting as a business? I became a non-exec director of a company called NFT Technologies. For me, NFTs will be very successful in the sense of creating loyalty for fans of businesses. So non-fungible tokens, I could release, for example, for Happy, I could release 100 NFTs all around cocktails. So if you wanted to buy one, Adam, um, it will cost you maybe £20 for the NFT. It doesn't have to be the half million, which is Board Ape Yacht Club sort of purchases that are picked up. But the £20, for example, will get you one free cocktail every Tuesday, for example, so that you add utilities onto it. So it's all about the benefits that come with that. And I think if you look at how do we engage with our business fans better, everyone has newsletters. How many emails do you get a day? Probably 20, 30 from brands trying to sort of get your attention. If you create an NFT for your business, you then create an exclusive club where you can engage with them and give them really good offers. So the NFT can be priced at whatever you want, however you really see that value of the NFT. But if you add the right utilities with it, such as discounts, previews on menus, free entry on a Friday night if you're a nightclub, whatever it is, you can tailor that and people then feel connected and part of your business even more. And they've bought that. So they, they actually own a part of your business in a way, you know, so they feel like they've got skin in the game. For me, NFTs are just a, a way that is something that's digital and it's part of that Web3 metaverse world that, you know, not a lot of people know about at the moment. But it's just a way of, you know, brands trying something new and just trying to see, you know, can we get more engagement from people? Will people give us more respect and stop going to our competitors if we've sort of had these sort of things in place? There's a lot of venues around the world now that are really going hard on the NFTs. There's even a couple of hotels in, in America that are just NFTs. 
and it's like a membership, right? So where we've got members clubs here, Soho House, Century Club, uh, you know, Homegrown, whatever it may be, they pay a membership for the year. With the NFTs, you can buy the membership, which is could be five thousand pounds, a thousand pounds, and then you have all the other utilities. You might get free food, you might get membership to the gym that's in the in the location, whatever it may be. It's just another way, another element of sort of creating that brand loyalty, and I think that's what everyone's looking for. The hardest thing is obviously to find a customer for your business. But the next hardest thing is to keep them as your customer and keep them as your fans. You need to keep trying any ways you can to keep them engaged and, and to make it fun. And and NFTs, you know, people think it's a scary thing. Cryptocurrency NFTs is really scary. It doesn't have to be. NFT technologies have simplified the process. So we can actually create an NFT for your business for free and businesses can try it and see if they actually have any demand, any uptake from it from their fans. And I think it's really aimed at the next generation of Gen Zs because they are so used to using this type of software. So in five to 10 years, they are going to be your customer. So it's not going to be alien for them to sort of start using this. So it's just about adapting. We can talk all day about AI and chat GPT that's coming out at the moment, which is top of the conversation. It's coming. Technology's here. We have to embrace it. And let's see if we can make our businesses better. And is this going to then run alongside the sort of influencers on social media or maybe even the loyalty schemes whereby you could go to a bar and the bar will say, if you post an image of this drink and tag the bar, then you get another drink free or some food free or something like that. Is that how you envisage it happening as well? I think influencers, people are being still using influencers. I think there's a lot of really strong influencers out there. I think some brands can overdo it, if I'm honest. But in terms of, you know, what you just said about scan this QR code and get a free drink, I think that's still going to be there. You know, it's very hard to, you know, fill your business up these days. You have to be competitive. You have to be diverse with your marketing. So it's not a one size fits all. I think if you can create an exclusive club for your business, whether it's only 100 people, but if they become the 100 best ambassadors for your business, I think they will tell their friends. And it's that, you know, the best form of marketing will always be word of mouth and recommendations from, you know, me to my friends and my family. Influences are fantastic. But we're looking at the sort of modeling on that. What's better for your business, a micro-influencer, mid-tier or macro? And a lot of our brands are saying actually micro-influencers are better because their fans are more engaged with their their accounts than somebody who's got 25 million because, you know, there's just too many people on there to sort of get the message across. So it's all really exciting. You know, there's lots of things happening. And, you know, for any business, if you were to work with Posh Cotney, for example, we would put that strategy for you. We'd look at who is your customer, what is your message, and how can we get that out to the best people? That's been really interesting to speak to you this morning, Liam. A really interesting career starting in, in the football league and moving into the hospitality sector. So thank you very much for coming in and speaking to us. Thanks, Adam, and best of luck with the rest of the series. Thank you. You can find out more about the hospitality and leisure team at Maples Teasdale by visiting our website at maplesteasdale.co.uk and following the links to our sector experience. You have been listening to the MT Takeaway with Maples Teasdale. I hope you can join us again next time when we'll have another guest from the hospitality and leisure sector. The MT Takeaway Podcast with Maples Teasdale.